Welcome to The Jay Martin Show. My name is Jay Martin, and my guest today is Steve Hankey, and we are in for a treat. Now, Steve served as a senior economist to President Reagan on his Council of Economic Advisors, and for the next 30-plus years has been called all over the world to provide direct counsel and advice to the leaders of other countries when it comes to currency and economic policy. This conversation was incredibly engaging, and I know you're going to love it. We talk about the variety of economic sanctions that we are seeing being spread through 30 plus economies right now. We talk about the hot war and the hidden war behind the hot war in Europe. Obviously, as a currency specialist, I had to get Steve's thoughts on the future of money and central bank issued digital currencies. This was a fascinating conversation. I learned a ton and I really enjoyed it. I know you're going to enjoy it as well. As always, right beneath this piece of content, there is a link where you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter. I publish every Sunday. I love writing it and I'd love to have you join the team. Here is Steve Hankey. Enjoy. All right, here I am with Steve Hankey. Steve, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much for making the time. Great to be with you, Jay. I want to start getting your thoughts on economic sanctions because I've heard you speak about the ineffectiveness of economic sanctions of the past, pointing to countries like Cuba and Venezuela, and then stating that it, it actually creates more of a rally around the flag scenario, which makes sense. If you want to unite a community, point them at a common enemy. Um, so if I've captured that correctly, why do you think it's still the knee-jerk reaction of the U.S. government to lead with economic sanctions in this new conflict in Europe? Okay, Jay, that, that's an, an interesting subject. Uh, I, I'm against, just to make it clear, I'm against sanctions really for two reasons. One is that I'm a free trader so uh, sanctions obviously are uh, interference with trade by definition. So I, I'm, I'm against it in principle. I'm against them in principle, it is. Uh, also, as a practical matter, and I'm moving to the practical side, which you kind of touched on, they, they just don't work. The record of sanctions, and, and there have been sanctions for a long time, just, just not with, there have been all sorts of sanctions over, over time historically. And the, the record is pretty poor. They, they usually do not accomplish their stated objective. Vir virtually all of them fail to do that. And, and one reason they do, they do create a rally around the flag effect. You target somebody like Fidel Castro and bang, all of a sudden, all the Cubans are rallying around Castro because why? He's being attacked, Cuba's being attacked. And, and so you, you have the same kind of thing going on in Venezuela, for example. Maduro is the president, he's been the president for 10 years and he's, he's going no place. And the reason he's going no place is a huge rally around the flag effect that's kept him in power. and. And it's kept him in power, even in the face of the fact that he's completely destroyed the economy. I mean, oil production is, is down at the bottom of the barrel, literally. Uh, you've, you've had millions of Venezuelans uh, leaving Venezuela to escape poverty. 
you've had two two episodes of hyperinflation over that 10-year period, Jay. Now, that's an inflation rate in, in which the inflation is running over 50% per month, per month. So they've had two of these episodes during that 10-year uh, period in, when Madeira has been in power. But he's He's firmly entrenched, I think even more entrenched than he was 10 years ago, thanks to you, mainly U.S. sanctions and, and the U.S. trying to manipulate the, the whole situation. You know, they put in an alternative government, the U.S. and the EU. Uh, Madeira is the so-called elected president. Of course, we know the elections weren't fair and even-handed, but he was elected He's, 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 he's in the presidency, and all of a sudden, the United States and Europe says, oh, we, we don't like Madeira. We're, we're putting in another president. We're, we're going to appoint the president. And, and that didn't work out very well. Uh, Guaido was the alternative, and, and basically, he's, he's been run out of town on a rail. He's in, he's in Miami right now. Is he? Yeah, he, he, he was going to go to a meeting earlier this week in Colombia of the opposition, and uh, they, they, they almost threw him in jail in Colombia and dispatched him to Miami as fast as they could. But, but at any rate, back to the sanctions thing. I, I'm, I'm categorically against them, not only because of principle, free, free trade, it's obviously a massive interference, interference with free trade you got two party what and why am i for free trade well if you have if 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 jay martin and steve hankey agree to to you know buy and sell something why should the government be stepping in between us and saying no you can't do that we we, we don't like we don't like that trade we're, we're going to say no to that that's essentially what sanctions are doing on a national basis so that's the principle of the thing. If, if, if two parties agree to something, obviously it must benefit both of them or they would have never agreed to the thing in the first place. So that's the free trade idea. Now, you, you come in with the practical side of it. And since all the scholarly studies show that at best, maybe only five to 15% of sanctions historically, starting from the beginning of time, have ever worked, have, have ever accomplished their goal. That, that's, that's what we mean by working. Have they ever really accomplished their desired goal? And the answer is, is no. So they're, they're for losers. Yet, this is the first choice in almost yeah, every they, hot conflict. Well, yeah, now that gets that does get back to your question, and that is why did they use them? Well, number one, for the politicians, they're they're they kind of appear to be costless. You see what I mean? You just okay. you, you're 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 not you're not cranking up a big army and invading some country. You're going to war with them. This is a weapon of war, but but it's one that appears to not cost very much. But in fact, there are tremendous costs and unintended consequences associated with sanctions. I like to uh, quote one of my, or, or go through a, a, actually a, a story that one of my 
good friends and mentors, a, a Canadian, by the way, Robert Mundell, Bob Mundell, was, as you know, is a Nobel laureate in economics, was a Canadian uh, and, and born pretty close to where you are right now, actually. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, Bob and I were good friends. We served on the uh, Financial Advisory Committee of the United Arab Emirates for a number of years and, and knew each other as professional economists, obviously, before that. But, but Bob identified what he called the Afghan effect. And, and the Afghan effect is you, you get something going on in a small remote place and it has all kinds of repercussions and unintended consequences and a lot of cost. Now, this gets back to sanctions, the Afghan effect. In 1979, the Russians, then the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and the US uh, Jimmy Carter was the president at the time. Carter put in uh, sanctions, a ban on U.S. export of grain to the Soviet Union. That that was the sanction. Okay. They were they they were sanctioning the Soviet Union and and going to hurt them by cutting off U.S. grain exports. So what happened? The Soviet Union they the Soviets didn't sit still. They they went to Buenos Aires and cut a deal with Argentina to obtain the grain at, in fact, a good price. And what happened? The U.S. farmers basically got taken to the cleaners with the thing because they 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 could not sell their grain, which they'd already agreed to sell to the Soviets. The Argentines did it. And who was who was in power in Argentina then? Well, it was the junta. The military junta, the arch enemy of the United States, was actually running the show in Argentina. The sanctions the U.S. put on the Soviet Union boosted tremendously the the junta's uh, economic climate. Uh, there was a huge economic boom actually that occurred in Argentina at the time. So, so that's the Afghan effect. It looks like some small little thing in a faraway place that, that you're doing, you're imposing these sanctions and boom, it starts ricocheting around, has all kinds of consequences. Now, I happen to be, I grew up in the state of Iowa. That's where I was born and raised. And Iowa was the first primary election. And who lost that primary? Jimmy Carter, because all the farmers in Iowa were infuriated because they couldn't sell our corn and soybeans to the Soviet Union. So that's how these small little things work. And these, these unintended consequences and costs are tremendous. One, by the way, one huge cost associated with sanctions uh, is the, the uh, motivation and, and development of criminal activities and criminal mafia, international criminal mafia networks. We put sanctions on North Korea and, and how does North Korea survive? Well, they, they survive through a sophisticated international web of criminals that, that supply them with what they need. Of course, there's a cost to that, but that's that's it creates these huge shadow economies. And that's that's what's going on with Russia right now and, and, and Iran. And and by the way, the U.S. has sanctions on 30 different countries right now. So, so it, it, it is a weapon of choice. Back to your original question, Jay. It, it is a, 
it is a weapon of choice. And the reason that it is, it is not because they don't work because politicians never think about what's going to work or not work because the, the most stupid thing is to give a decision making power to somebody who doesn't suffer the losses from bad decisions. And that's by definition a politician. How many politicians actually suffer financial losses because they made a stupid decision? None. Yeah. Yeah. That I I don't that's a that's a powerful statement. The danger of giving decision making power to somebody who doesn't suffer the losses of their own bad decisions. Um I mean, there's so many examples of that just in the last few years, tr truthfully. Okay, I want to I want to pull on a couple threads here. One is a parallel that I've, I've also heard you speak about. So when I when I consider why might, with the horrible history and track record of economic sanctions, why is it still the first choice? And then I think about the way you explained it. You know, we're not really we're sort of uh, focusing our decision making within very local and near term outcomes, which is just not how the world works. You've also spoken about monetary policy in similar ways, saying, you know, policymakers are so focused on the daily data as opposed to just measuring money supply. They're looking at the noise and ignoring the signal. And this is why, you know, they, they make seemingly very short term decisions. I want to get there. But back to uh, the conflict in Europe and the sanctions in response to this. Do you have any thoughts? I, I saw a tweet you put out recently relating the amount of spending the United States uh, uh, plays into their their military uh, power, right? Directly correlated to the amount of military activity they're going to engage in. Essentially saying, the more you invest in your military, the more wars you're going to find yourself in. And nobody invests in the military more than the United States, and therefore they're constantly caught in conflict. What is the motivation for the United States to keep this, to support this war and seemingly prolong it uh, at, at present? What do you think about that? Well, uh, to, to really put your finger on it, it, it and identify it with precision is kind of difficult. There are a lot of things going on. And, and one, one thing in the background is, is what President Eisenhower warned us against in his uh, final uh, speech when he left the White House after two terms, and that, that's a military-industrial complex. So, so there, there's a lot, there, there are a lot of businesses and people who profit off of war and, and, and just generally supplying the defense, supplying the defense department and, and keeping that money flowing through. So, so that's, that's one factor that's, that's, that's plays into the picture. Uh, the other, the other fact is that as as an imperial power the position of the united states is has been pretty provocative and, and, and aggressive i mean we we have more foreign military bases than anybody else in the in the world by by a long shot uh i don't have the numbers right in front of me jay but i i think they're i think i think we have over 700 military bit foreign military bases now what what are we doing with those now what what country has the second most the united kingdom they have about 125 i can remember that number so so they're 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 kind of a dying i mean they as an imperial power 
the United Kingdom is, is, is long gone, but the military bases they have and the posture that they take overseas is, is still imperial and pretty aggressive. And then you get down to places like China and Russia, and it's very interesting. They, they almost have no military bases overseas. I mean, we're talking about very small numbers. Again, I, I don't have those numbers right in front of me, Jay, but sure. it's something like, uh, I, I, I think Russia has maybe about 35, and I think China has five. Huh. So we're, we're, we're just orders of magnitude difference between, you know, the world's biggest imperial power right now, the United States, and, and what was at one time a big imperial power, the United Kingdom. They have the bulk of foreign military bases. So you, you have to say, well, what, what, are the, what are they doing with those? Now, the U.S. would say, you know, they're now aggressively beefing up things in Asia, and, and they want this ring of containment around China. So, so they, they argue, oh, this is a deterrent. We're defending ourselves. But, but, I, but I don't think the Chinese view the thing quite the same way. <laughs> they, they've, uh, they, they've, they view it as being very provocative. Of course, of course. And that, you know, kind of leads me to a follow-up question. Therefore, if you look at where the money and, and therefore the weapons are coming from, we talk about the Russian-Ukrainian war. And, and yes, that may be the battlefield, but it's really, we're looking at a war between the U.S. and China. Are we not? I mean, all distractions aside, is that not the, the real conflict that's occurring? Well, well uh, it, it seems like they're 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 well they're really t two. <laughs> one is China, okay, fine. But uh, the other the other one that's hot because the United States actually has military personnel in Ukraine. So it's it's just not sending a lot of money and sending weapons. Or they're right. actually these Thank recent you. leaks that came out indicate that they're actually U.S. personnel in, on there boots on the ground kind of thing. So so that's that's the Russian uh, conflict. Then you've got China and and you can't forget Iran, you know, just uh, today in the last few days now we've had the the US directing a tanker that was headed for China and with Iranian oil in it supposedly breaking sanctions and the US directed that ship to to go to the United States. And what what there's always a tit for tat kind of thing. What did the Iranians do? <laughs> well, they 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 grabbed the ship, in, in the in the Gulf. Uh, so so this is this is a very tense situation. It, literally, literally, as we speak, I mean, this is this is unraveling the the, the Iranian U.S. little spat. But but it's dangerous. You see, all these things are dangerous. Uh, the main enemy is, is war. The main enemy is war. So you, you, you want to wind these things down. You don't want to ramp them up. So you, the, so the thing that they should be doing and focusing on before they completely destroy uh, Ukraine is wind that baby down. Get, get some peace talks going and, and uh, wind it down.
And okay, here's a, I guess a simple question, but why would the United States not consider that option? What's the downside of the United States walking this conflict towards some kind of a peace agreement and maybe convincing the Ukrainian to accept some concession, Ukrainian people to accept some concessions, but... Well, one one, one conjecture, uh, th these are just conjectures, really. Sure, uh, sure. But, but one that uh, is has some validity, I think, is Cy Hirsch, you know, the famous reporter uh, in the United States who... who this basically broke the story about the U.S. being behind the explosion of Nord Stream Two, that pipeline. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so, and 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 he's he's an old veteran reporter. He's he's been he's been there, done that. Remember the the Malai massacre in Vietnam. He he was the one that got broke that. And, yeah. And, uh, that's right. And, and he's he's got a lot of credibility. His his conjecture is that. Uh, and, and this is with sources that he has, is that the, the, the U.S. strategy, the president has decided that uh, this, is, this is good for electoral purposes. Because it, you see, if you go to war, and, and they've done a lot of studies about this, of countries at war, whoever happens to be the leader, there's kind of a rally around the flag effect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it, it and and what do you have in the United States? It, this is a bi, bipartisan thing. The 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 Ukrainian war, uh, obviously, it's has big support on the Republican as well as uh, obviously the Democratic side. Huge support and and uh, on on both parties. Even though the public is something else, the public's not that keen on it. The support in the public isn't that keen, but if you actually look at the the U.S. Congress, you you get pretty strong bipartisan support. So let's jump into a uh, a sort of parallel situation that's unfolding, and this is the de-dollarization of some of the same countries who are involved in the I guess the eastern side of this conflict, right? Looking at BRICS nations and their increasing trade outside of U.S. dollars, it's not big numbers. Sure, it's on the margin, but it's growing. Things take time. I mean, I think it took 30 years for the world to transition off the pound sterling. Are we headed that direction with the US dollar? Are we there where we could say, you know, this may take, you know, however long, but the path has been set. The world is gravitating away from US dollars as the, uh, the world reserve currency, or is this just some volatility um, that will not pull us off the long-term trend, which is continued U.S. power and dominance when it comes to the world currency. Well, let me make a, a few points on this, Jay. Uh, one, one is that obviously weaponizing the dollar and, and the uh, dollar infrastructure like the, the SWIFT payment system and, and things like that, it, 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 do, it does make the dollar... Some, which is, by the way, the international currency. There's no, there's no question about it. It com completely dominates the scene. Yeah. There, there are other regional currencies that are pretty important. The, the, the euro, for example, is, is a big regional currency that's important. The yen is, is not 
the yen really isn't even a regional currency. It's a Japanese currency, but it's it's big. Uh, but but the dollar is the international currency, and by weaponizing it, it it, it creates a shall we say a vulnerability. It, it does increase the vulnerability and and the potential for a challenger to to make a challenge. But let's let's look go back history. Let's let's go back to the the seventh century BC before Christ. Okay, we've had we've had fourteen international currencies since then, and okay. and and. That, that's a rel- that's a long period of time and a relatively short number a, a small number of international currencies so that that suggests it takes a lot to knock one of these international currencies out of the saddle so even though uh, even even though the dollar clearly is more vulnerable when weaponized it, it, it is still dominant and and I think anyone trying to forecast its demise or ultimate death is is kind of a fool. This is really a fool's game. Now there are a lot of people, by the way, who want who 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 do beat the drums. One are are the obvious enemies of the United States uh, that we've talked about already. We've had who Iran. We, we have. Russia, we have China. I mean, and they're all com- competitors in in that sphere, uh, and 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 other smaller ones, uh, the BRIC countries that you mentioned, and and so that's that's one group of kind of sovereigns that that ha- have an interest in in uh, poking at the dollar and, and challenging. The other is the crypto crowd. The, so the crypto the crypto crowd is is r- really <laughs> In, in a in a in de facto in an alliance with all these so-called enemies or competitors of the sovereign competitors of the United States, so they 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 beat the drums and fan the flames as much as you can possibly do. So every little bilateral transaction that's now occurring in Juan, it's a big headline, a big deal on social media. The, the reality is, in terms of the magnitude of these deals, they're really quite tiny. It, it, you, you mentioned this before. It, it, it's kind of, it's so, so far, it's small potatoes, but you, you do have to keep your eye on it. But as I say, if you ask me to forecast the demise or death, I'm not going to get into that game. I think it would be foolish to do so. Now, when you hear people talk about how the U.S. dollar is not backed by anything, um, you know, my reaction to that is, well, it's, it's backed by, as you said, it's backed by 700 foreign military bases. I mean, there's a handful of things you could say it's backed by. Um, you know, what's your response to that, though? When you hear people say, you know, the U.S. dollar has been on a decline since removed from the gold standard. It's not backed by anything. The world sees this and they want something of substance. That's why we're seeing you know, maybe commodity-backed basket of currencies ideas start to emerge in the East. What, what do you think about that, Steve? Okay, so so if you go back again to the those fourteen international currencies that I mentioned, they they were they were all backed by a commodity of one sort or another. I see. Okay. So, so that all, all 
so so the new game in town is 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 you know since since we dropped the uh, any semblance of gold backing for the U.S. dollar when they closed the gold window in the early 1970s, uh, we're, we're, we're in new territory. We, we haven't been in very long because remember, I, I started my little historical timeline in the 7th century B.C. There was, there was never a currency that either wasn't a commodity currency or wasn't backed by a commodity. One of the one of the two, and and so we're 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 kind of in uncharted waters, so to speak, in that regard. Now, you you did mention what 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 makes for an international currency. Well, one one thing that makes for an international currency is is military power. You, you mentioned that. The other the other thing is to have a a, a big zone of of, of uh, uh, trade and transactions, the transaction space, and the transaction space of the of the U.S. dollar is is pretty much global. I mean, if you look, even even if you go to the U.K. for example, or or Japan, a, a lot of the exports coming out of Japan and the U.K. are invoiced in U.S. dollars. They're, they're not invoiced in yen or they're not invoiced in, in pounds sterling. Yeah. So, so the transaction space is, 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 is huge. That's typical of, of an international currency. The military power uh, is typical, uh, typically associated with an international currency. And, and, usual, and historically, they've always been commodity-based or, or a commodity. So, so that's the only thing really that's changed. Yeah. Now, which is big. I mean, it, that seems important that there's no hard backing of the currency. But again, like I, I tend to say, like, or I tend to think it's, it's backed by the net asset value of the United States, including the military, um, including the education system, the entrepreneurial um, power of the country. You know, there's a handful of things you could form an argument there. No, it's not a commodity. Uh, but it's backed by a handful of other more difficult to measure attributes. When I'm sure you're watching the developments of central bank issued digital currencies announcements like the, the Fed coin. People are talking a lot about the Fed coin now, and and you know, given your experience studying and advising on on currencies, Steve, what's your take on the future of a central bank issued digital currency, where we might see that rolled out, and how? Well, it, a couple of points, Jay. Uh, one, I, I, I don't like the idea because of the privacy aspects. So yeah. it, it, as a matter of principle, I, I, I don't like it. Uh, and, and let me just give you an example. For example, in 1990, until the Civil War started in, in mid-1991, I was the chief economic advisor in Yugoslavia. And, and Yugoslavia, of course, they had the Yugoslav dinar, which was which was a junk currency, and 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 Yugoslavia at the time, everybody used the Deutschmark for anything significant, but the the local currency was the dinar, and and they had an accounting system. They called it an accounting system in Yugoslavia, but in fact, 
it, it was a system and had nothing to do with accounting as, as we normally think of, you know, assets, liabilities <laughs> and that kind of thing. It, it, it was it was a way to keep track of where all the dinars were going. OK. And, and, and so uh, and, and by the way, it was very hard when when we started reforming things, it was very hard to get rid of it, root it out. It was very institutionalized, but the government had that system so that they could keep track of wh where all the dinars were going. And it, it was very explicit that that, that that that's what they were doing. So that's that's why I now jumping ahead. Of course, that was that was not a digital type thing. It was just a, a you know bookkeeping kind of uh, affair. What a digital currency the potential for snooping would be pretty great. So, yeah. I, so I, I, I don't, I don't like it as a matter of principle from, from that point of view, it seems like everybody is hell bent on getting into this game though. It does. If, if you really see what's going on, what they're talking about, it seems like all the central banks want, want to go that way. Now, so, so that's one aspect of it. The, the other aspect is that it, it actually really isn't much new because we now engage in lots of transactions with our credit cards that are all oh, that's digital. Yeah. You so know, I, so every, every month, think, think Jay, of how, how much of your activity is done with cash versus a credit card. When I'm in Canada, zero, zero, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, what? The credit card or the cash? <laughs> cash. I never use cash in Canada. And when yeah, I travel, so like we just spent a month in Indonesia, my family, in the month of March, and you know, still largely a, a cash economy within Canada. I I never use cash at all. Yeah, well, I, I, I use some, but not very much. I, I do use it at the gas station because I get a discount on, on my gas if I pay cash rather than using credit card. All right. I like it. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, I pay it, it, my it, kickboxing it, it, coach in cash. That's not true. I pay my kickboxing coach in cash. One guy, I got one person we have, yeah. <laughs> and he likes cash. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Look, so here's here's some questions, some follow-up questions on that topic then. So the central bank issued digital currency concept allows for a lot more snooping. And I, you know, we can walk down that dystopian rabbit hole. My counter to that, and I get a lot of pushback on this, is that we're already being surveilled. Like every movement I make, everything I type into this device right here, any street I walk down, wherever I drive, any transaction. I'm already being monitored. Like we know this by now, right? That the domestic espionage is very, very present. So here's another tool to track me even better. Yes, that's worse. I'm not in favor of it, but I kind of feel like we signed away our privacy rights a long time ago for anybody who signed up with a Google account, a Facebook account, a Microsoft account. Um, I mean, you name it, you had an Apple account. Like these are tracking devices and it's in my pocket all, all the time. So a lot of that. Now there's a new level of ability with a CBDC, which is it's it's negative and I'm not for it. But my my bigger issue with CBDCs is that we already spoke about the trigger happy, the trigger happy nature of short-term thinkers in office when it comes to sanctions. 30 countries right now are suffering from 
economic sanctions from the US. Well, what happens when those same policymakers can sanction individuals, right? Because the, the money becomes code that can be programmed to behave in any number of ways. I mean, the, the advantage right now the physical money with a digital ledger is that the money can't be programmed to behave in different ways with central bank issued digital currencies. In theory, it could, and those same those same sanction happy politicians could apply their uh, spontaneous decision making to individuals based on some arbitrary um, occurrences in your life. Does that sound too? Well, that, or yeah, that think? well, I, that 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 gets to the point and, and and it kind of counters your your argument in a way and that is that you say oh okay google and my microsoft all these people know where i'm going and so forth i've already i've already got lots of snoop snooping on me but if you get in the digital currency they can stop freeze your bank account yeah which is you know and that door's been opened in canada recently Right. Uh, that occurred to civilians. Um, and once the door has been opened, it's easier to open it the second time, especially if the mechanism makes it simpler. But anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. So that, that but, so that's that's kind of my point. I, I, you know, that they've they've really got got you if 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 the only currency out there, let's assume let's assume it's 100 percent digital, then 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 you, you've had it. I mean, and and. and in, ter in terms of your potential vulnerability, you're a hundred percent exposed to, to what some government bureaucrat may or may not do to you. Yeah. Yes. Yes. You are typically in office for a short period of time, making short term decisions to win the near term election and uh, and save their own career. I mean, you know, it's it's a no. They, they no. They would. They would have all kinds of laws and rules and so forth to so-called protect you. But, but uh, the the potential still there, and so that's 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 why the privacy issue really becomes okay. critical because it it, it it it's you know you flip a switch and your bank account is is wiped out. Yeah. Or frozen. Or frozen. Oh yeah. So. So I, I agree with you there. Uh, and thank you for pushing back on the privacy thing, because I agree with you there too. Yet, it seems like we both believe this is still an inevitability. W would you call it an inevitability that we move towards a, a centralized digital currency? Uh, it, it, well, listen, no, no, nothing is really always inevitable. Let's just say there's a high probability. It okay. seems to me that there's a pretty high probability that we're, we're going in that direction. Exactly what form it will take and so forth, I, I really don't know. But okay. but that's that's a drift of things. Okay. Okay. I want to um I want to get into uh, a little bit of economic outlook from you, Steve, and then portfolio allocation as much as you, you want to share. Um I've heard you speak about your forecast for a pretty deep economic recession still to come. Um, you're seeing signs that give you that conviction. Uh, elaborate on that thesis for me. You know, what are you seeing in the near-term um, economy? And then how are you hedging yourself appropriately? So to, to look at the economy and the ac economic activity, you, you really have to have some model in mind. And, 
And the most reliable one is what's called the quantity theory of money. It's, it's all about money. So if you, if you change the rate of growth in the money supply, uh, broadly measured in, in the U.S., it would be M2 is the broadest measure officially that they have. Uh, if you change the, the rate of growth significantly in that money supply, in about one to nine months, with a lag of about one to nine months, asset prices start changing. So sensitive commodity prices start changing and, and equity prices start changing, for example. Uh, housing prices could start changing. Then with another lag of about six to 18 months after the change in the money supply, you get changes in real economic activity, real GDP starts changing. And then with a lag of 12 to 24 months after the change in the rate of growth in the money supply, you get changes in inflation or the price level. So, so that's, the, that's the model. And, and if you look at what's going on in the United States, well, what did we have? We had uh, uh, in 2020, uh, starting in February of 2020, a huge expansion of the money supply uh, for about a year and a half. The average growth in the money supply was about seven, over 17% per year. And, and, and the rate of growth in the money supply that's consistent with hitting a 2% inflation target in the United States is, is around 5.5%, let's say 5 to 6%. So the money supply started growing about three times faster than what I call the golden growth rate. That's the rate at which the money supply should be, should be growing to hit the inflation target of 2%. And sure enough, with a lag of one to nine months, commodity prices started going up, the stock market boom, real estate started going up. And then with another uh, lag, you, real economic activity started roaring away. And then with another lag, we had, of course, inflation, which peaked out at 9.1%. Uh, 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 well, now it's been almost a year ago when, when we hit that peak. Something, by the way, that John Greenwood and I, using the quantity theory of money, predicted was going to happen. We, we wrote about this well in advance in the Wall Street Journal. We said, the inflation would end up at 6%, maybe as high as 9%. Well, it went up to 9.1%. We hit the bullseye with that analysis and forecast using the quantity theory. So where are we now? We are now, the Fed, the central bank in the United States is throwing the whole thing into reverse. First, they hit the accelerator and put the thing at the floorboard we have unprecedented monetary growth, unprecedented inflation, and then they throw things into reverse. So right now, the money supply, since March of 2022, has been contracting. It's been slowing down. And now the year-over-year -year growth rate is actually negative 4.05%. The, the three-month annualized rate of growth in the money supply in the United States is al almost negative 10%. So, so this, remember, I said it started in March of 2022, and, and now we're in, we're in this zone of six to 18 months lag for the economy to start really slowing down. 
Yesterday, we had slowdown numbers for the first quarter of uh, this year. The economy only grew at 1.1%. So, so we're, we're in this big slowdown. Uh, we've got also the biggest contributor, about 80% of the money supply is produced by commercial banks in the United States. And bank credit year over year has slowed down now. It's only growing at, at about 4% per annum. The six-month annualized rate is actually a negative th three and three-quarters percent. And with the banking problems we've had in the United States, I think that bank credit will, will continue to slow down. So we have this huge slowdown in the money supply. And, and bank credit, which is the biggest contributor to it, is, is slowing down. And that means what? It means that we're, we're in for a good recession. And, I, and the Fed, unfortunately, looks in the rearview mirror. They're, they're, they're looking, and all their models are geared towards looking at lagging indicators. And as a result of that, I think they will continue to not only increase the federal funds interest rate just a little bit, okay. it looks like the probability of a, a, a 25 basis point increase in the Fed funds rate in the May meeting next month is, is about 85% now. That's, that's what the markets, the Chicago Mercantile, Fed funds futures markets, that's what it's telling us. And I don't think they'll change what they call quantitative tightening, and that's shrinking the balance sheet of the, of the Fed. So all those things mean the money supply, I think, will continue to go down, which means that the recession will just be deeper and last longer. As far as inflation goes, Greenwood and I, a couple months ago, did write in the Wall Street Journal, we, we spotted the money supply going down and we said, we better change our forecast for inflation for the end of 2023. Our original one, based on the quantity theory, was 5%. We said it would be about 5%. Well, now we've changed that a couple months ago, and we think it'll be between 2 and 5%, the inflation in the United States. It's already, by the way, the last reading was 5%. So we're, we're, we're already kind of in our, in our zone. So the, the inflation story is... It's kind of over in a way because we know the money supply has been shrinking rapidly. And with that, in a lag of 12 to 24 months, we see inflation coming down. So that, that's happening. And I told you about economic activity. And we have a lot of things that, that are comport with this. The earnings reports are going down. Commercial real estate, of course, is completely in the tank in the United States. Credit downgrades are, are now exceeding credit upgrades. So, so the pictures, the storm clouds are kind of gathering, shall we say. Sure. But, it, but sure. it's all because of what you put, you said the signal and the noise. The signal is the money supply. The noise is all the daily stuff you see in the newspaper and all, all the data that's released on a, on a regular basis. And, and that is really what the Fed looks at. They don't look at the money supply. They look at all these other indicators. Okay, so that that makes sense to me. And I, I can follow your, your thought pattern there. And as we 
um, continue to decrease the money supply as banks continue to decrease the amount of credit they're offering. The velocity of money continues to slow, creating some demand destruction. You know, this will decrease prices. What does your portfolio look like right now, Steve? And walk me through your maybe 10-year outlook uh, as you know broadly as you want to or, or can on um, the, I guess, I would say the health of the economy, but really what I'm more interested in is your portfolio assumptions, where you're allocating capital and why. Well, uh, so, you know, without, without getting too personal, just giving a broad brush uh, sure. picture yeah. of it, uh, you, you do mention Indonesia. And as you know, I was, I was Suharto's chief economic advisor during the Asian financial crisis. And 1997, 1998, and so I pay attention to Indonesia. I'd be overweighted in Indonesia. Really, I'd be fairly heavy overweighted in Indonesia. Uh, so that that's one little remark. Uh, the other thing I I mentioned commercial real estate's tanking, so you want to be short rats, you know, the real estate. Uh, you want. With with a recession coming, you want to be have lots of cash. Yeah, and 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 ha having lots of cash is a good thing because as as the price of assets go down in, in a recession, uh, there'll be buying opportunities. And if you've got cash, you can use it. So lot, lots of cash. Uh, in addition, uh, long gold because gold does well in recessions. It usually starts appreciating about six months in advance of a recession and, and, and keeps, keeps going up during the, the recession. Um, commodities, uh, I, I said that commodity prices are sensitive and, and with a lag of, you know, that, that lag of one to nine months after big changes in the money supply, sensitive commodity prices start changing. So they've been going down. If you look at the commodity indices, you, you don't want to be long the index. You, you've, wanted, you've wanted to be short the, the index. Uh, the, an index that covers lots of commodities. Uh, but, but there are exceptions. Uh, for example, one commodity that's gone down a lot recently, and there's a lot of uh, chatter about it in the press is lithium but i think long-term lithium is a good you said well what uh, long term you, you want to be long lithium because you need lithium for batteries and as we transition into a green economy you're going to need a lot of batteries i'm not just talking about electric vehicles i'm talking about huge batteries for grid stabilization for electricity and things like that so so there, there are other assets that uh, if you if you if you're holding what you consider to be good long-term investments do you hold on to them and 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 add to those positions if for example uh, uh, there's a softness in price of course always always the best thing if you have a position and 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 you're long, something that you like and you like the long-term prospects for it, you know, the best thing that you can hope for is that there'll be a market pullback so you can add to your position. So I'm with you. I'm with so, you on that. Yeah. So, 
So lot, lots of cash to be a- adding to positions of, of good, solid companies that, that you like the long-term prospects for. That, that's, what you, that's what you use your powder that you've kept dry to add to. Yeah. So just in, in general, that's kind of a general thing. Short, short the real estate rents, long gold, short the commodity indices, lots of cash. Uh, find something that look, looks promising for lithium because I think that's a good long-term thing. And, 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 and as far as countries go, you know, take a look at Indonesia. And I want to ask you about that specifically because I'm presently looking at real estate in Indonesia. We went for a month to do a bit of reconnaissance and we're going back in February for the better part of a year. What strikes you? Um, as being so bullish on Indonesia? Well, I think that uh, n- number one, that uh, Bank Indonesia has, has actually done a pretty good job of monetary management. And, and I think the, so, so that's one thing. You've got pretty good stability. The, the, the rupee is pretty, pretty stable. That's the currency, of course. And uh, I, I just think they're, their values in in the stock market, and uh, you, you've got a basic basically a, a growing economy with a young population with, I think, a lot of growth potential, and, and geopolitically, it, it if 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 the imperial power doesn't like China, and there's a there's a reallocation away from China into places like Vietnam and Indonesia, uh, obviously they'll benefit. Vietnam yeah. had, Vietnam has, by the way, there, there has been a, a, a lot of, you know, re, in, in relative terms, uh, there, there's, there's been a, a relative shift for some items into Vietnam, which has helped Vietnam. But I think there'll be some of that going on in Indonesia. Okay. Okay. Look, Steve, I, I want to, we'll wrap it up there. I've, I've kept you long enough, longer than I said I would. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for coming on the show, chatting with me and getting in front of my audience. Great to be with you, Jay. Uh, look forward to visiting, vis, visiting you out there in British Columbia. If you enjoy my content, do me a favor, follow or subscribe to this podcast. Drop me a rating and a review and share this with a friend. All of these things allow me to get bigger and better guests on the show. Now you can catch me all over social media at jmartinbc. Thanks for tuning in.